Well, good morning, saints. Good to see you all in church today. I trust you have your Bibles open already to Acts chapter 13. When I was sitting here in the pew, George leaned over to me and said, R.D., that's a long reading. And I looked at him and said, yeah, but a short sermon. And if you believe that, I have swampland in Florida I want to sell you. Well, listen, miracles still happen, so maybe pray and discover if you're a cessationist. Let's bow our hearts in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, your word that is living and active and sharp, your word that is a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths. What better way for us to spend our time than in your word, being taught by your spirit, sitting at the feet of Jesus, as it were. I pray, God, that now your Holy Spirit would do what only you can, would convict us of our sin and confirm and strengthen us in goodness and lead us to our Savior. Pray that you would grant us tender consciences to repent and return to the grace found only in Jesus. We pray all of this for the glory of his name. Amen. All right, Acts chapter 13. I don't have any fancy introduction. I don't have any great title. I just thought we're going to move through the passage and then apply the word. Is that okay? All right, look at verse 13. That's where we're starting. This is the first chunk that I want us to deal with, just one verse. Chapter 13, verse 13, it says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So as we've been tracking along through Acts, we now see Paul and his companions taking a prominent role in the unfolding story of God's saving purposes. Here, Paul and his companions, they pack up from Paphos and they go to another place named Perga. This is their travel from the island of Cyprus, which is where you would have found Paphos back in the day, to Asia Minor, what we now call Turkey. That's where Perga is. But verse 13 tells us that this guy John, John Mark, he deserts the mission at this early stage. At this point, we don't know exactly why. There are so many different possibilities. Perhaps he was fearful. He knew that they were going to Asia Minor, to Turkey, and he knew that the persecution would be heavy. And so maybe he bailed on this missionary journey because he was afraid to count the cost. It's also possible that John Mark is leaving the missionary journey because right before his eyes is unfolding a shift in leadership. You'll notice up to this point in the account, it has always been Barnabas and, and Saul. But now it is Paul and his companions. And John Mark, you know, for him, Barnabas was Uncle Barnabas. And he's seeing that this missionary journey is no longer being led by Uncle Barnabas. It's now being led by Paul. And maybe that's where he was just like, yeah, I think I'm going to dip. So either way, he, he leaves. We're going to find out later in Acts chapter 15 that Paul didn't think much of this guy. John Mark wanted to rejoin the missionary journey, and Paul's like, no, you're a wimp. Get out of here. We'll hear more about that in a couple of weeks. But as we're tracking through these missionary journeys of Paul in particular, you're going to hear the names of many different locations and cities and towns. And listen, you can't fool me. I know that when you're reading your Bible and you read the name of a city or town, you treat it the same way that you treat genealogies. Right? Skip over it, move on, gloss over it. But there is something to be gleaned by 
the names and places where Paul goes on these journeys. We believe that all scripture is breathed out by God. Amen? And so even the towns and the cities and the places that he goes, there are things for us to glean from those places. Now, if you have a study Bible, it will have maps somewhere, either in the back or in the front or in the middle, and those will help you to orient where Paul's going on these journeys. If you don't have a study Bible, come see me after church. I sincerely want to give you one, okay? Please, please do, because it's important to see these places. Here's why it's important. So Paul and his company are in Paphos. That's where we pick up. They are leaving Paphos, leaving Cyprus. And Paphos was notable back in the ancient Near East because it was a city that housed a temple to Venus, the goddess of love. From Paphos, they went to another place called Perga, the city in Turkey. And it was a notable city back in that time because it had a temple to the goddess Diana. A temple to Diana that was not on the same magnitude and scale as the one found in Ephesus, but it was enormous nonetheless. And Diana was the goddess of the moon and of fertility. And so, Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel. This is implied in these locations. Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel in Paphos. Now, Christians believe that God is love. But in Paphos, they had an idol. They had a temple to the goddess Venus. And they believed that love is God. From there, Paul and Barnabas will go to Perga. And in Perga, they're going to preach to a culture that worshipped the moon and their own ideas of fertility. This was a culture in Perga that by virtue of the fact that they had this temple to Diana, it's clear that they believed that you could manipulate the fates. Christian man and woman in the gospel, we believe that God is sovereign. I want to take a moment now and just unpack these two places and how the gospel applied in those different locations because the gospel that Paul and his companions carried to Paphos and Perga is more relevant today in Burlington in 2023 than ever. Let's look first at Paphos. It was in Paphos that the men worshipped Venus by assigning virtue to the fact that they would give themselves over to their most base desires. They would say that it was actually a good thing to express their perverted passions with cult prostitutes. They had unbridled appetites and they assigned to those appetites religious or idolatrous proportion. Does that sound like today? Well, see, today, we are being told that our entire identity is summed up in our sexual attraction. We're told that our entire identity 
worships at the altar of Venus. Your, your sexual attraction, your sexual affection, your sexual desires, even your gender. Back then, Venus was the expression that sex serves no purpose other than pleasure. Well, you see that narrative again today, don't you? So much of our culture worships unknowingly at the Temple of Venus. They believe that sex is just casual encounters, tender hookups, filth on the internet. Only fans accounts where people are engaged in unwitting cult prostitution. They're paying for sex to gratify their own desires. Everyone in our culture believes that sex's ultimate purpose is for a momentary, selfish, passing pleasure and that contentment lies in the next Tinder swipe. What does the gospel say? How would the gospel preach to a city that had a temple to Venus? Well, the gospel would come along and tell us that sex is, in fact, God's good gift. It's intended to cement and solidify a lifelong monogamous marriage between a man and a woman. It's intended to renew the covenant between those two people as through their entire life they give themselves to the other person exclusively. It's an intimacy that's shared between a married man and woman and no one else. It's, it's exclusivity that gives it its intimacy. Look, even if you are married now and you look back over the course of your life and you would say, certainly there were times in my life where I was not living God's best for me, every one of us now looks back and says with regret, I wish that that were an intimacy that I'd only ever shared with my spouse. That's how the gospel preaches to a culture given over to Venus. A culture that says that love is God. That was Paul's message in Paphos. That is the gospel in Burlington 2,000 years later. So that's Paphos. Let's look at Perga. In Perga, Paul and, com and, and his company encountered a city that was given not to the goddess of love, but to the goddess of the moon and the fates and fertility. So the people in Perga were known to worship Diana. Actually, more specifically, what the people in Perga did was worship themselves through worshiping Diana. You see how that works? That's the nature of all idolatry. Idolatry is a form of worship that puts you at the center. And with you at the center of your worship, your religious expressions and piety, they are not intended to surrender to gods, but instead they are intended to trick, manipulate, 
cajole the gods into doing your ends. That's the nature of idolatry. Worshiping yourself through other idols. It would manifest back in Perga with this idea that if you do this or that for Diana, then she will grant you a baby. But the gospel preached back then in Perga um, would have displaced that false narrative with this simple truth. That God is not manipulated. He is sovereign. And Jesus tells us that he is not only sovereign and strong, but he is so good that he is, the only way you could understand how good he is is to imagine the best father possible. He's sovereign and he's good. Now maybe, like me, you've had a wonderful father and you can relate to that and say, I understand those attributes of God being like a loving father. But even if you had a father who was less than awesome, your heavenly father is all of those things that you wish your earthly father had have been. All those longings and desires where growing up you wish that your father would have simply, fill in the blank, are intended to show you God as your father in negative and in relief. So, so idols are manipulated for your purposes and your ends. That's what Diana was all about. Fertility goddess, moon, twist and manipulate the fates. But Christians say, no, no, that's not true. God is sovereign and he's good. Matthew 7, Jesus says, your father is so good. Do you, do you even know how good he is? He says, look, if a child were to ask his earthly father for a loaf of bread, would his father give him a stone? Look, if a child were to ask his earthly father for a fish, would his earthly father give him a serpent? He says, well, certainly not. And how much better is your heavenly father than any earthly father? This expression of the temple of Diana in Perga is a reminder that the idols of the world, the gods of the world, are capricious. You need to trick them. And friends, there's no joy or confidence to be found in that. If that's your worldview, and even if it's just your unconscious worldview, you're living out of this idea that, you know, the fates are somehow out there and you've got to somehow twist them and manipulate them to your ends. You've got to persuade the Dianas and the gods to have your outcome. Not only are you worshipping yourself and using them, but you will never have joy or contentment because you'll always ask the question, did I do enough? Did I do the right things? Did I not do the wrong things? It's a six and a half mile per hour treadmill that you'll never get off. But the God of the gospel made known to us in Jesus is not like Diana in Perga. He's good. He's trustworthy. You know, I want to move on, but before I do... Um, 
The central issue that people in Perga were trying to manipulate with Diana was the issue of infertility. And this is one that really hits home and cuts deep. There are few things in life so difficult as wanting children and not being able to have them. Carrying with you this deep longing. But friends, if that's you, do not give yourself to the worship of Diana. Do not be allured and tempted by the world's narrative of the fertility gods. Instead, believe in the Lord God. I remember shortly after Matthew was born, some, you know, 21 years ago now, um, my late wife Rhonda became pregnant again. We were rejoicing. We wanted to have, like, an entire hockey team, if not soccer team. And uh, we were so happy. But shortly into the pregnancy, we miscarried and lost that baby. From that point forward, we were not able to conceive another child. And, you know, I have to tell you, church, that was absolutely devastating for us. For me in particular, it was a keen sense of loss to never be able to conceive another child. But now when I look back on it, I can see God's good hand in it. And I'm not going to get into it all, but, but one of the good things that came out of it was this deeper love and trust that I have in God's good and sovereign hand. That's what's at the center of Diana worship, as opposed to the worship of the Lord God. Can we love and trust God when things don't work out the way we wish? Well, the gospel in Perga is the same as the gospel in Burlington. The gospel recalibrates and realigns our hearts and our affections so that we no longer try to manipulate the fates or the gods, but instead we love and trust the Lord God as made known to us in Jesus. We trust that he is good, that he's able, that he's strong, that he's sovereign, and that he's working everything out for my good and for his glory. Second point. Look at verses 14 to 23. This is the message of salvation. This stuff will go a lot faster, I promise. Verse 14. So they went on from Perga and came down to Antioch in Pisidia. You get a sense of their travels here. Now this Antioch that they are going to is not the same Antioch where we heard about the earliest church a couple of weeks ago. This is a different one. This one's in Asia Minor, in Turkey. It's actually not uncommon to have multiple places with the same name. Back then, it was in the wake of the conquest of Alexander the Great. So many cities took on names that were actually tied to him and to his empire. It's still common practice today. 
We live in a nation that was colonized by the British, and so we have towns with names like London and Cambridge, right? It's the same thing. So they're going to the Antioch that's in Turkey. Verse 15. Paul and his company then go to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And we're told that actually on this day, I don't know if it was something special or if this was common practice, but this day was open mic day where they read out from the Law and the Prophets, verse 16, it says, Paul's like, well, if there's an open mic, I'm going to get up and tell everyone about Jesus. And I love it says in verse 16 that Paul stood up. I don't know why I like these little passing comments, but it says, he motioned with his hand. (laughs) What did he do? He's like, or was he more like, I don't know. So he stands up and he motions with his hand. And he says, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Verse 17 to 21. He then goes on a long explanation. He begins with Abraham. He then talks about the Exodus. He then talks about God's people wandering in the wilderness. He then talks about Joshua's conquest of the land of Canaan. He then talks about the judges who ruled over God's people in the land of Canaan. And then he moves on and talks about Saul, Israel's first king. What's Paul doing here? Well, he's laying a foundation for these people by giving them a broad sweep overview, a Reader's Digest version of all of salvation history. Verses 22 to 37, he's doing this to bring them to the point of David and to show them that David was Israel's greatest king but that there is a greater David. That's what he's doing. You know, David ruled over Israel. And to this day, the Jewish people still pray every day that God would grant them a king like David. But David died. Look at verse 36. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. He died, he was put in the ground, and he decomposed. Verse 37. But Jesus, it says, he whom God raised up did not see corruption. In verses 33 to 35, Paul cites David's own words back in Psalm 16. He says, You, O God, will not let your Holy One see corruption. And so what Paul is telling all these guys who are gathered together is, he said, look, here's the broad sweep of salvation history. It culminates in the person of David. We look to David like a savior king, but David died. And before he died, he looked ahead and foretold that there would be one far greater than he. One that would not see corruption. One that would be raised from death to life. Even David looked ahead to a savior from God. Here's the crescendo, verses 38 to 39. Have a look at it as I read it. 
Paul tells them in the synagogue on that Saturday, he says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, this man that David foretold, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Verse 38, through this man, forgiveness of sins proclaimed to you. Look, we all carry with us the guilt and the burden of sin. Things from our past. Things from our present. Those sins weigh so heavily upon us, they sometimes feel like slavery and chains. But Paul, in this verse, preaches sin's remedy. I want you to notice that when Paul preaches sin's remedy, it's not anything that you have to do. Did you see that? Verse 38. It's something that's proclaimed to you. Actually, more specifically, it's a person, a someone who is proclaimed to you, Jesus Christ. Verse 39, he says, you are by this person who's greater than David, you are forgiven and you are freed. That's the proclamation of salvation over you today. Paul builds this argument and flushes it out a little bit. He says, the law of God that was given to you through Moses, it could never free you. The law of God was intended to show you God's good order by showing you that he's a God of order and not chaos. That's what the law of God does. The law of God functions because it shows you your sin and your need for a savior. You can never keep it. But the law will never set you free. You know, this is a word for everyone who, maybe you've been a Christian for a long time and you think, I am pretty darn good. God sure is lucky to have a guy like me. Well, you know, I may not be the best, but I sure am better than so, you know, or whatever. Fill in the blanks. Paul says, look, there's no freedom to be found in keeping the law. You will always only ever fall short. And if you think you are keeping the law of God, you lie to yourself, you're deceiving yourself, and the truth is not in you. That's what John's going to say. No freedom to be found there. But there is freedom to be found in this one. That's what Paul says. This one who is proclaimed to you. Well, freedom for whom, right? Is it just for, it's just for the religious types? You know, those guys who are all into Jesus and all that stuff? Well, look at verse 39. And by him, everyone who, say it out, is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Everyone who believes. Everyone who 
puts it all on Jesus and lets it ride. Now look, in pastoring, I know that many of you are struggling with assurance. You remember coming to faith in Christ. You remember the moment that you were born again. But Satan keeps accusing you and trying to rob you of the joy of your salvation. Here's the problem. You have shifted from putting your trust in the objective promises of God and instead you are looking to your own subjective feelings. There's no assurance to be found in that. If you are struggling with assurance and confidence in your walk with the Lord, you are trusting in your feelings instead of God's word. So what do you do when that happens? When you notice that Satan is attacking you and telling you things like, are you really a Christian? Oh, I saw what you did yesterday. Christians don't do that. Well, that's the voice of Satan. You need to identify it and displace it with the objective truths of the word of God. Belief Paul tells these guys gathered in this synagogue, comes from God. It's proclaimed to you. It's nothing that you have done. It's a gift and it's a work of the Spirit. Everything around you in the secular world, whether you know, benignly secular or actively satanic, seeks to rob you of that assurance and that confidence. But the kind of belief that comes from God in Jesus frees you through forgiveness. Okay, two big things I want to draw out of this before we move to our last point. Paul stands up in the synagogue. He says, that's awesome. Let me tell you guys the message of salvation. Okay, that's what he does. Two things to, to notice. The first one is that God is sovereign over everything. And he is working out his plan of salvation in Jesus. That's the first thing. There's not a random molecule in the universe. God is working out his purposes of salvation ultimately in Jesus. The second thing to notice is that this entire account is about God choosing his people. From Abraham through Moses through the wilderness wanderings, through Joshua, through the judges, through Saul, through David, through Jesus. God chooses. And his whole purpose is to do so, to raise up a Savior in Jesus. Here's why this really matters. Those two truths are the message of salvation. They establish the bedrock and the foundation on which any Christian man or woman would have any right to say, I am saved. Let me say this a different way. You're here this morning, you've come to church either by your own volition or because you were guilted into it by someone else. Are you saved? 
Do you know that you are saved? How do you know that you're saved? Well, to that question, some people answer things like, I really hope so. Or they say things like, well, you know, I'm, I'm doing my best. Do you hear what's wrong with those two answers? Those two answers presume that salvation is in some way your doing and your work. Christian confidence rests on this foundation. That God called Abraham. That God did not leave his people as strangers in Egypt, but delivered them from slavery. That God led Joshua as a great general in the conquest of the land of Canaan. That God appointed judges to rule over his people in righteousness. That God gave his people a king named Saul, a better king named David, and that God ultimately saves his people in Jesus. That's why you're saved. That's the foundation. That is the message of salvation. That God in Christ has saved you. Any other foundation is shaky at best. You say, are you saved? And you know, you, you try to point to yourself for some good works or some good deeds, but you know that for every good deed or virtue that you demonstrate or display for God, you have countless that you're ashamed of and wish weren't there. Are you saved? Well, you point to the God who saves you in Jesus, full stop. This is why Paul preached the message of salvation by laying out all these details of God's sovereignty over time and history. He says, this God holds history and he's working all things together for my good and for his glory. He is the God who moves heaven and earth to save his people. Kings, kingdoms, rulers, average folk, eras, epochs, ages, and time, they all unfold at his command. And he has set it all in motion and governed it every step of the way in order to save you in Jesus. Friends, that's a rock-solid salvation. Verses 40 to 41. Not everyone's going to be saved. Paul says, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perished, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Paul says that back then, just like today, there will be scoffers who refuse Jesus actively and passively. You know, passive refusal of Jesus is those people who persecute you openly and despise you. They do harm to your character and to your reputation for being a Christian. But passive refusal of Jesus is those people who, they say things like, well, I'm a self-made man. 
I'm going to trust in myself, my own virtue. It was that way back in the synagogue on that day, and it's still that way today. Verses 42 to 43. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Some reject the message of salvation in Jesus, but others want to hear more. Look, if you're a Christian man or woman here this morning, you know exactly what that feels like. You come to church because you just want to hear the word of the Lord. The story of Jesus is so sweet and so dear to you because you know that it is God in Jesus Christ who has saved you, caused you to be born again. In 1779, an Anglican clergyman named John Newton wrote a song entitled, How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds. I'll spare you me singing it, but I just want to read you a couple of the verses. He said, How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrows, heals his wounds, and drives away his fear. It makes the wounded spirit whole and calms the troubled breast. Tis manna to the hungry soul and to the weary rest. Dear name, the rock on which I build, my shield and hiding place, my never-failing treasury filled with boundless stores of grace. You see, some people will reject the message of salvation. But to those whom God is saving, there is nothing sweeter. All of our hope is in Jesus. Close with verses 44 to 52. In this, we see that God saves the least likely. This is a theme that's repeated throughout Acts, but it's worth pointing out again. Some people will respond to the word of God. Others will reject it. But the interesting thing that we see throughout Acts, even as we become accustomed to this polarizing nature of the word of God. Some receive it, some reject it. The thing that's still shocking every time is that it doesn't slice the way we expect. Verse 44. The next week the whole city gathers to hear the word of the Lord. Verse 45. The Jews, the religious guys, you know, the good guys, they opposed Paul and the word of the Lord. They reviled him and rejected the Lord. Look at verse 46. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you, you Jews, first, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Look, in verse 46, you see the stakes at play when it comes to how you deal with the word of God. We 
often get dragged into debates about the worthiness of God's word. The world around us says things like, can you really trust God's word? Is it really worthy of your life? But they're forgetting that it is the word of God that you do not read, but it reads you. You do not determine its legitimacy or worthiness, but what you do with the word of God will determine your legitimacy and your worthiness. So Paul and Barnabas look to these guys who are rejecting the word of God, and he says, well, you guys have just deemed yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Verse 47. So the gospel then goes out with force under Paul and the guys to the Gentiles, people like you and me. Verse 48. Along with them we rejoice and glorify the word of God. As many as were appointed. That's the watershed. Between those who receive and those who reject. As many as were appointed will rejoice and glorify the word of God. This is, again, Paul making this point. Salvation is God's work. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He has rescued you. So you're sitting here this morning and you wonder, well, R.D., am I appointed? How can I know? Well, friends, that's like a 45-minute sermon for another day. Let me just say this. That's not a question that an unappointed person would ever ask. If God had not set his affection upon you from before the foundation of the world and set out to save you in Jesus, you would never give a passing thought to your sin and to your need for a savior. So the very fact that you ask the question, am I appointed by God for salvation, is an evidence that you are, and that God has saved you in Jesus. You can have assurance. Verse 49, the word of the Lord was spreading like wildfire. Verse 50, it's faced with opposition and persecution. Paul and Barnabas, they're like, yeah, that's enough. So they shake the sand off their sandals, take the dust off their sandals and dip. Um, verse 51, they go off to another town named Iconium. We're going to talk about that next week. And verse 52, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. I pray that this morning, Lord God, as we have pressed into the truth found only in Scripture, that you would grant us deep assurance that our salvation is by God and in Christ. that these objective promises of God in Scripture are far more true than our fleeting subjective feelings and worries. In fact, that even those worries and concerns serve as evidence that we do belong to you. 
Lord God, I pray that you would give us this joy in the Holy Spirit that we would celebrate so great a salvation in Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen.